Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years War. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at some of the context that leads into the political turmoil that undermines the start of England's attempts to go into what will become the Hundred Years' War, and some of the causes that lead up to the eventual breakdown of relationships between France and England. We'll also be looking at Edward II, who is an important figure surrounding this period of turmoil that underpins a general weakness in what is happening in England during the current period, which may or may not factor into the breakdown of relationships between England and France as we go forward. Certainly, a number of Edward's poorer choices exacerbate tensions, and it's hard to think that France didn't see England as being a weaker candidate for any kind of political or military action. And when we get there, we may discuss the fact that that may have emboldened them to take certain actions they wouldn't have taken otherwise. I hope you're looking forward to getting into it by starting with chapter 4 here, and we'll be reading through. I hope you enjoy the ride. So, without further ado, let's dive into it. Chapter 4, Here mine author maketh mention of the parent of this good King Edward III. This King Edward II, father to the noble King Edward III, had two brethren, one called the Earl Marshal, who was right, wild, and diverse of conditions, the other, Sir Edmund, Earl of Kent, right, wise, amenable, gentle, and well-beloved with all the people. This King Edward II was married to Isabel, the daughter of Philip Lebo, King of France, who was one of the fairest ladies of the world. The King had by her two sons and two daughters. The first son was noble and hardy King Edward III, of whom this history has begun. The second was named John and died young. The first of the daughters was called Isabel, married to the young King David of Scotland, son to King Robert de Bruce, married in her tender youth by the accord of both realms of England and Scotland for to make perfect peace. The other daughter was married to Earl Raymond, who after was called Duke of Gildres, and he had by her two sons, Raymond and Edward, who after reigned in great puissance. Chapter 5. Hereafter beginneth the occasion whereby the war moved between the kings of France and England. Now showeth the history that this Philip Lebeau, king of France, had three sons and a fair daughter named Isabel, married into England to King Edward II. And these three sons, the eldest named Louis, who is king of Navarre in his father's day, and was called King Louis Hutton. The second had to name... Philip the Great or the Long, and the third was called Charles, and all three were kings of France in their father's decease by right of succession each after other, without having any issue male of their bodies lawfully begotten. So that after the death of Charles, last king of the three, the twelve peers and all the barons of France would not give the realm to Isabel the sister, who is queen of England, because they said and maintained and yet do that the realm of France is so noble that it ought not to go to a woman, and so consequently to Isabel, nor the king of England her eldest son. For they determined the son of the woman had no right nor succession by his mother, since they declared the mother to 
have no right, so that by these reasons, the twelve peers and barons of France, by their common accord, did give the realm of France to the Lord Philip Valois, nephew sometime to Philip Le Beau, King of France, and so put out the Queen of England and her son, who was as the next male heir, as son to the sister of Charles, last King of France. Thus went the realm of France out of the right lineage, as it seemed to many folk, whereby great wars hath moved and fallen, and great destructions of people and countries in the realm of France and other places, as ye may hereafter see. This is the very right foundation of this history, to recount the great enterprises and great feats of arms that have fortuned and fallen, sith the time of the good Charlemagne, king of France, there never fell so great adventures. This is an important point to discuss. Chapter 5 raises what we refer to as the causes belli, the grounds for war, the cause that you are fighting for. It is the legal cause that is often raised in these terms, and it is perhaps a cause that underwrites nobility and honour and protecting the rights of, in the contextual period of the time, a woman who may not be able to defend herself. We're going to find out that Isabel is by no means weak or incapable, but she is someone who cannot as easily call men to arms or that sort of thing. There are other reasons that we are going to get into, and they involve very traditional things like power and money and the ownership of property and things like that. But this is one of the big reasons, and it's one that is going to be very advertised. These people did something to myself or my family, it slighted me, and because you are all my subjects, it thus slighted you as well. We should demand restitution from those people in order to claim back our honour, dignity, etc. for the English side. While on the France side, these people are trying to determine who has ownership of our kingdom. They are trying to rule us or declare that they know what is best for our people after we made a legal and right decision. How dare they? How dare they come here and do and say these things or make these demands for the French side? It's something that goes backwards and forwards, and we're going to find as we get further into it, one thing it does also do is this is one of the cruxes of where soft power enters the discussion. Not the power of military arms, but the power of things like diplomacy and legalities. If I have a valid claim to your throne, if I'm the English in this case, can I then declare myself the King of France and declare all the people who said that I'm not the King of France people who are traitors or made an illegal decision and invalidate that decision retroactively. If I do that and I call French knights to my banner, will they come? Maybe, maybe not, probably not, seen as the English are foreigners in this case. But it's an interesting point and it goes backwards and forwards between a surprising amount of lawyers who are going to be involved in the discussions and peace treaties and the manipulation of events as we go forward. We're going to put a pin in that because chapter 6 is going to start the discussion of a slightly different topic. So just bear with me because I'm sure we'll have plenty to come back to on that front later down the road. But for the time being, let's have a look at chapter 6. 
of the Earl Thomas of Lancaster and 22 other of the great lords and knights of England that were beheaded. The foresaid King Edward II, father to the noble knight Edward III, on whom our matter is founded, this said king governed rightly, diversely his realm by the exhortation of Sir Hugh Spencer, who had been nourished with him since the beginning of his yonkth. The which Sir Hugh had so enticed the king that his father and he were the greatest masters in all the realm, and by envy thought to surmount all other barons of England, whereby after the great discomfiture that the Scots had made at Stirling, great murmuring there arose in England between the noble barons and the king's council, and namely against Sir Hugh Spencer. They put on him that by his counsel they were discomfited, and that he was favourable to the king of Scots. And on this point the barons had diverse times communication together to be advised what they might do, whereof Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, who was uncle to the king, was chief. And anon, when Sir Hugh Spencer had espied this, he purveyed for remedy, for he was so great with the king and so near him that when he came, that he was more beloved with the king than all the world after. So on a day he came to the king and said, Sir, certain lords of your realm have made alliance together against you, and without ye take heed thereto betimes they propose to put you out of your realm. And so by his malicious means he caused that the king made all the said lords here to be taken, and their heads to be stricken off without delay, and without knowledge or answer to any cause. First of all, Sir Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, who was a noble and a wise holy knight, and had done Sith many fair miracles in Pomfret, where he was beheaded, for which deed, he said, Sir Hugh Spencer achieved great hate in all the realm, and especially of the Queen and of the Earl of Kent, brother to the King. And when he did perceive the displeasure of the Queen, by his subtle wit he set great discord between the king and the queen, so that the king would not see the queen nor come into her company, the which discord endured a long space. Then it was showed to the queen secretly and to the Earl of Kent, that without they took good heed to themselves, they were likely to be destroyed, for Hugh Spencer was about to purchase much trouble to them. Then the queen secretly did purvey to go to France, and took her way as on a pilgrimage to St. Thomas of Canterbury, and so to Winchesley, and in the night went into a ship that was ready for her and her young son Edward with her, and the Earl of Kent and Sir Roger Mortimer, and in another, and in another ship they had put all their purveyance, and had wind at will, and the next morning they arrived in the haven of Boulogne. So that's a bit of a crazy story there that the king decided on the word of one man, Hugh Spencer, that he would behead 22 members of his court, including the Earl of Lancaster, who was his uncle, and that he would, perhaps it's certainly implied here, consider some pretty strong action against the Earl of Kent, his brother, and his wife, and perhaps even his son, so, what's going on with Edward II and Hugh Spencer? Why does this person have so much ability and power? Well, for that, we kind of need to backtrack a little bit into Edward II's life. I have mentioned before, he's not terribly well regarded by history, and there is some amount of reason for that, and that is largely because 
he is pretty miserable as a king, and it is very easy to conflate job performance with personal virtue, but he's also not particularly good as a husband or a dad or many other things. And to give a little bit more information, I'm going to refer to The Plantagenets, The Kings Who Made England by Dan Jones. The Plantagenets is basically the family name of the ruling dynasty at this time. So Edward II is a member of the Plantagenet family. All right. Let me pop this one open. Edward of Carniform was a curious young man. In some ways, he was the image of his father. Tall and athletic, a skilled horseman, and a good-looking Plantagenet prince who lacked his father's lisp or his grandfather Henry III's droopy eye. He was a handsome man and strong in body and limb, wrote the author of the Anonymal Chronicle. But he fell short of the qualities and style of his father, for he was concerned not with deeds of chivalry or prowess, but only with his own desires. Despite his regal good looks, it was clear from the very beginning of his reign until its dramatic conclusion that he was a very poor candidate for kingship. Not a great start in the biography of your life. This was a pity, since when Edward II ascended to the throne, he inherited what was potentially a very advantageous set of conditions. His father's two most troublesome noblemen, the Earls of Norfolk and Hereford, had recently died. The greatest remaining Earls, Thomas Earl of Lancaster and Gilbert Earl of Gloucester, were Edward's cousin and nephew respectively. Archbishop Winchesley of Canterbury was exiled and Walter Langton, the royal treasurer, with whom Edward had clashed in 1305, was swiftly fired, deprived of his lands and imprisoned. There was an imposing debt of around £200,000 hanging over from Edward I's reign, but a competent king with the goodwill of a new reign should be able to refinance that without too much difficulty. Yet Edward was, from his earliest months as king, viewed with suspicion and hostility. Every aspect of his life seemed at odds with the office of kingship. This was most obvious from his social habits, in an age where chivalry and martial valour still formed a crucial part of the royal ideal, Edward was constantly portrayed as a degenerate. Many of the most poisonous chronicles pen portraits of him date from a time when disaster had struck his reign, but it was nevertheless commonly and contemptuously said that he was obsessed with peasant activities such as swimming, rowing, ditching, and thatching. Edward was accused by the chronicler Rudolf Higden of preferring the company of jesters, singers, actors, carriage drivers, diggers, oarmans, and sailors, to fraternizing with nobles and knights, and indeed sailors, bargemasters, and carpenters were recorded dining in the king's chamber at times during the reign. A royal messenger once said that the king preferred thatching and ditching to hearing mass, although there is other evidence to say that Edward was conventionally pious and could hold his own in battle. His reputation for frivolity and lowly sports preceded him. He did not enjoy or hold tournaments, nor did he sponsor great chivalric occasions such as the Feast of Swans at which his father had belted him as a knight. His lack of interest in proper public conduct of kinship nagged away at his reputation throughout his reign and eventually reduced him to a figure of popular disdain. Edward also had a reputation for favoritism, and this was a great deal more damaging. He spent his entire adult life under the shadow of cronies, with whom he fostered unhealthy obsessions. The king dishonoured the good people of his land and honoured its enemies, such as flatterers, false counsellors, and wrongdoers, who gave him advice contrary to his royal estates and the common profit of the land, and he held them very dear, wrote the Anonymal Chronicler. There were several such favourites during Edward's lifetime, but one for whom his passion ran highest of all from as early as 1300, Edward was dominated 
dominated by one notorious in particular, Gaveston. Now, I'm going to pause there and just have a look at some of what we've just read. Edward is panned as being a particularly poor character in hindsight. A lot of the people who write chronicles after his time depict him very poorly. He associates with the wrong crowd, shall we put it. He speaks with peasants more than he speaks with knights or nobles. He lacks interest in proper public conduct of kingship. He has low reputation throughout his reign and is a figure of popular derision. It shouldn't really seem hard for a king to manage being relatively baseline popular unless he's actively doing things which upset people. But somehow in his day-to-day life, Edward manages to just fall below people's expectations in common ways. It also manages a reputation. It also mentions a reputation for favoritism with several different cronies. Gaveston being the first or the most popular, but certainly not the last, which is presumably how Hugh Spencer enters this particular mix. So no one particularly likes Edward and no one really thinks Edward is good at his job which he's only really had training to have one job, and he's kind of messing it up already. Not a great start for him. The other thing that we see here is, I'm going to go back to the quote from the Anonymal Chronicler. The king dishonored the good people of his land and honored its enemies, such as flatterers, false counselors, and wrongdoers who gave him advice contrary to his royal estates and the common profit of the land he held very dear. This is kind of coded language that we're going to see a couple of times where you're not really allowed to say the king's an idiot and he did a bad job or he doesn't know what he's doing or he makes mistakes. You say that the king got really bad advice because someone nearby him set him on the wrong path and so that person's at fault. That's a really common way of talking about things going wrong. And we saw that a little bit in chapter 6 of the Chronicle as well, where they talk about the fact that Hugh Spencer might be a bad guy because he's responsible for steering the king wrong and losing a battle against the Scottish. That's sort of a cause of spell I for taking up a case against Hugh Spencer, is there was something really key that had to go right, Hugh was responsible for it going wrong, thus some amount of blame and consequence should fall to him. But this doesn't get into understanding quite how Hugh Spencer then gets to just say, these 22 people should get a death sentence. So let's see if we can get a little bit more information about how favourites operate with Edward II by taking a bit more of a look at Gaveston. Gaveston was a Gascon knight. He was slightly older than Edward and was probably placed in his household by Edward I following good service rendered on campaign with the old king in Flanders in 1297. Gaveston was graceful and agile in body, sharp-witted, refined in manners, and well-versed in military matters. He must have struck the elder Edward as the perfect model of knightly chivalry for his eldest son to follow. Have a quick look at the differences in description there because it's a good key for what people consider virtuous and masculine, what they're looking for in a king. Gaveston is graceful, agile, he has sharp wits, he has good manners, and he understands military matters. While Edward likes jesters, he likes thatching, and he likes swimming and indulging himself. 
very different sort of takes on the ideal there. Either way, it would quickly prove otherwise. Whatever strange relationship developed between Gaveston and Edward, it was clear from very early in their acquaintance that they shared a bond of unhealthy closeness, in which the pliable Edward was led by the nose wherever the clever, ambitious, and grasping Gaveston would take him. Gaveston was a highly charismatic individual, but insufferably arrogant, a trait that the author of The Life of Edward II called intolerable to the barons and the main core of both the hatred and the anger. But Gaveston's puffed-up pride delighted the king as much as it infuriated his contemporaries. If an earl or baron entered Edward's chamber, while Piers was there, Edward addressed no one except Piers alone, wrote the same chronicler who also suggested that Piers was regarded as a sorcerer. And so we have Edward either unable or unwilling to talk to the other people in a chamber when he can speak to Piers. Now, with a modern look at things, we might consider that to be a mental health issue. It could just be something as simple as a kind of anxiety before other people and their judgment or their demands, some kind of attempt at locking people out. Who knows? We'll never know if Edward II and Piers Gaveston were lovers, whether in the sense that we would understand such a relationship now or any other terms. It seems likely that they shared some bond of adoptive brotherhood, modelled perhaps on that of Jonathan and David in the Old Testament, in which Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Every major chronicler of the reign noted that Edward treated Gaveston as a brother, and the king referred to his friend as such in official documents. Perhaps there was a sexual dimension to the relationship as well, but if there was, it was not known at the beginning of the reign when Edward was betrothed to Philip IV of France's daughter Isabella. A fiercely conventional king such as Philip would have never allowed his daughter to marry a sodomite and a heretic, which is obviously what they thought of people who were gay at the time. Thankfully, we've come some way since then. But there was nevertheless an intimacy to Gaveston and Edward's relationship that scandalized their contemporaries, and it fell into a wider pattern of behavior that Edward's subjects and contemporaries thought of and characterized as abominable and unkingly. The first became a matter of national importance in 1305 when Gaveston was banished from the young Edward's company as part of the prince's punishment for a bitter argument with Edward I's treasurer, Walter Langton. Although he was readmitted and knighted in the great ceremony that preceded Edward I's final Scottish invasion the following year, Gaveston absconded from the campaign with 21 other knights and disappeared overseas to take part in tournaments. For this indiscretion, he was exiled from England on a pension of 100 marks per year. When Edward of Canafon learned that his brother had died in Brew by Sands and that he was now Edward II, King of England, his first act was to recall Gaveston from exile, grant him the Earldom of Cornwall, and award him marriage to Margaret de Clare, the daughter of Gilbert, Earl of Gloucester, and Joan of Acre, Edward's own sister. It was an inordinately lavish promotion for a knight. Indeed, it was one rightly fit only for a kinsman of the king, the Earldom of Cornwall was one of the great Plantagenet titles. It had most famously been held by Henry III's brother Richard, who in his day had been one of the senior noblemen in Europe, King of Germany and Count of Poitou. 
It brought with it lands not just in the southwest, but in Berkshire, Oxfordshire, and Yorkshire. The annual income was around £4,000. It was both a royal fraternal title and an award of enormous and significant power. And an award of enormous and significant power. To bestow it on a mere household companion like Gaveston was not only overly generous, it was politically very dangerous. The list of people who might be offended by Gaveston's promotion was long. Chief among them was Margaret of France, the Dowager Queen, who had understood from the late King Edward I that the earldom would go to one of her sons, Edward II's half-brothers Thomas of Brotherton and Edmund of Woodstock, not to be confused with Edward of Woodstock, who we will meet later. Born in 1300 and 1301, respectively, towards the end of the old king's reign. Despite their youth, either of these might have been expected to be placed in nominal charge of England's government when Edward went to France to marry Philip IV's daughter Isabella. But they were not. That honour fell to Gaveston. From the beginning of his reign, Edward made it clear that Gaveston was not merely a court favourite, but he intended him to play a role as quasi-king. When Edward left England in January 1308 to be married and do homage for Gascony, he left Gaveston as regent of England with extraordinary, unprecedented powers backed up by a new royal seal of absence. That the office of regent was one that traditionally fell to a senior royal official, a member of the royal family, or the Queen did not trouble Edward, yet it troubled all around him. Gaveston, elected to that title, was manifestly not a Plantagenet, nor was he a Justicar, a Chancellor, or an Archbishop. Yesterday's exile and outcast has been made Governor and Keeper of the Land, wrote the author of The Life of Edward II in disbelief. But Regent was not the zenith of Gaveston's rise, as the King's coronation set out to prove. This, to me, outlines... First of all, a considerable concern from the people around the king. The king is supposed to manifestly be the power of the realm in many ways. People view them as the symbol of authority and capability. And to all the people around Edward, it is clear that that is not the case. He is giving power hand over fist to this guy who is an outsider and someone of a significantly lower class and their attempts to deal with the king are not really working. If they try and talk to him while Gaveston's in the room, he talks to Gaveston instead of them. Edward is struggling to do anything right by the perceptions of the people around him. And it's very easy to think, well, he's the king, he can do what he wants. But he's the king because all these people support him and pay him taxes and will fight for him. And at some point, if they just decide not to do that, then he is not the king of anything. And he's banking very, very heavily on ingrained cultures and traditions that that kind of thing is you just not done. You can't just say that we don't support the king anymore. And there are outside power structures that reinforce that as well. There's a religious aspect. There's other countries that might say, well, that's a step too far and try and support Edward. But at the same time, Edward's doing basically everything possible to alienate the people who are going to be the, the people that he is going to rely on, that he needs to be on his team to some degree. And that is going to keep happening. 
I'm going to skip a little bit from the book so that you don't need to hear the full details of the coronation and how absolutely obscenely insulting it is to go through everything that Edward does in the coronation. It is pretty bad, to say the least. But it it is something that I do want to get into that eventually there was some amount of consequence. There was some pushback after people eventually grew far too sick of what happens in the coronation. It took mere days for the anger engendered by the coronation combined with Gaveston's contemptuous treatment of his fellow earls and barons to spark a political crisis. With a parliament due to be held in April, there were rumblings from the magnates of coming in arms seeking to visit retribution on Gaveston for his behaviour. In anticipation of trouble, the bridges over the River Thames were broken at the end of March and the king took refuge in Windsor Castle. Within less than a year of ascending to the throne and mere days of his coronation, Edward had expended every ounce of political capital and goodwill that a new reign customarily brought. He was forced to prepare himself for armed insurrection by England's barons. When Parliament met in April 1308, a group of magnates led by Henry de Lacy, Earl of Lincoln, produced a series of three articles, all of shattering constitutional importance. Homage and the oath of allegiance are more in respect of the crown than in respect of the king's person, they declared, drawing for the first time an explicit distinction between the king and the office that he held. The magnates also demanded that Gaveston be exiled from the kingdom and stripped of his earldom, writing that he disinherited the crown and impoverishes it and puts discord between the king and his people. This was no manifesto from a disaffected minority party, but a clear sign of constitutional opposition. Presented by virtually the entire English barony, the earls of Lancaster, Pembroke, Warwick, Hereford, and Surrey all supported Lincoln, and made a show of armed aggression in Westminster to make it clear how serious they were. Archbishop Wichesley, who had been absent from the realm during the coronation, was recalled to England by by the king. As soon as he arrived, he sided with the barons, threatening to excommunicate Gaveston unless he left England by the end of June. Only one baron, Sir Hugh Dispenser the Elder, adhered to the king. Dispenser was a trusted diplomat and an ardent loyalist who had paid a fortune, £2,000, to marry his only son, known as Hugh Dispenser the younger, to the Earl of Gloucester's sister in 1306. He would stick close to the king in years to come. And so that's us coming full circle in understanding where the Spencer family comes in. Hugh Dispenser in the book I've been reading from, The Plantagenets by Dan Joan, is the same Hugh Spencer that is referred to in the chronicle that we've been looking at today. The slight vagaries of spelling and translation coming into effect there. But we can see how things lead up to the passage we read in chapter 6. Hugh Spencer, who is a current favourite, who has stood by the king in a very, very trying time, says the barons are conspiring against you. The last time that happened, they showed up in force and forced him to hide. It is understandable, if not reasonable, that when presented with this information by someone he presumably implicitly trusted, despite that being a fairly terrible idea, the king reacted with the force that he had. He had legal force to have these people arrested for conspiracy and killed in an act that would cow other barons and shut down political conspiracy. It was a terrible move. 
I can understand why it was made, but it does shed some light on why people are not fond of Edward II. When we come back for our next episode, we'll have a little look into Chapter 7, how the Queen of England went and complained to the King of France, her brother of Sir Hugh Spencer. Hugh Spencer is going to be making up a couple of chapters here. He'll be featured in Chapter 8, I believe, and I think it's very possible he'll appear in Chapter 9 as well. Certainly, Isabel is going to become a character, and we're going to start seeing a little bit more of France. And so that should be a nice change. I hope you'll all join me then for when we take our next look at the chronicles of England, France, and Spain, and other adjoining places. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chronicles The Hundred Years' War. See you next time.